All right, good morning, guys. Uh, first, let's go ahead and turn to our passage. I'm going to have you go to Acts chapter 10. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we're going to be continuing in that study this morning. We're going to Acts chapter 10. We have a fairly lengthy passage this morning. We're going from Acts 10, 1 through chapter 11, verse 18. It's page 918 in our Bibles. If you don't have one, look on the floor around you. We have them distributed throughout the room. Feel free to grab one of those. While you're turning over there, um, I do want to pause and wish you a happy Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day. Um, I saw this sign at a church this week. Um, go ahead and put it up there. And uh, stork parking. I was, uh, I was reflecting on we would need an entire parking lot um, for, for all of the new mothers and expectant mothers. Um, we've had a lot of new moms around here. And so I want to celebrate that this morning and honor you guys. Um, and even as I do, I mean, I just, I can't help but reflect and, and let's enter into the fact that this is a complex day, right? There's a lot of complexity to Mother's Day emotionally. Um, and as I was thinking about it, this verse came to my mind. It, it just kind of was sitting on me all week, so I thought I'd share it this morning. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant with Jesus. And she was told that her son was going to be the blessing of the world. She was also told that her heart would be pierced with sorrow. I don't know of a much more powerful image of motherhood. The joy of blessing and the pain of sorrow. And Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Anyone who is a mother or has had a mother or has wished to be a mother, has a treasure chest in their heart where there are joys and there are sorrows, hopes and dreams and disappointments and pain. Today's a complex day because motherhood is a complex thing. Today is a day of joy and celebration. It's also a day of longing and of hopes. It's also a day of sadness and unfulfilled desires. Today, I just want to pause and honor that treasure chest in your heart to celebrate your joy and to honor your sorrow. So let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, I thank you for my sisters. I thank you that you are not far from them in their joy or in their sorrow. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us even as we honor our own experiences to honor the experiences of others. Help us in our joy not to be inconsiderate or unthoughtful of those who are in pain. And help us in our pain not to be unable or unwilling to celebrate with those who have joy. Lord, I pray that you will draw near my sisters today and amplify their joy and comfort their sorrow. Honor their hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10. Um, we've got a long passage. We're going to read it. Um, here's the thing. This is a long passage and uh, I thought about condensing it a little bit, maybe summarizing it, but the bottom line is that's the authority, not the teaching, right? And so uh, I think we're going to honor the Word by reading the passage in its entirety and then go back and pull the principles out of it that we want to focus on, okay? So we're starting in chapter 10, verse 1, okay? At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion 
of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come down in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason of your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard today. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent, as for the word 
that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, that is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak, speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you, will be, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gives to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. All right, that's a long passage. Um, it, is, it is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, partly because Peter's story is repeated three times and Cornelius' story is repeated twice. It is very detailed. And Luke devotes more time to this event than any other because it underscores its importance. This is an incredibly important turning point in the early church. Up to this point, Christianity was seen as a, a sect or a subsection of Judaism. Everyone who believed in Jesus was either Jewish 
or a proselyte to Judaism. So a Gentile who had entered into the worship uh, and gone through the process of becoming um, a proselyte. And everyone liked it that way. <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. It was comfortable. It was familiar, right? Everybody who was gathered around the name of Jesus um, had a cultural common ground on which to start, right? They all observed the same holidays. They ate the same food. They wore the same clothes. They had the same rules. They followed the same restrictions. They, they honored the same things, right? That common culture created a space that gave them a certain level of com- comfort. Now, there was tension among them, right? Even in there that you had Hellenistic Jews and you had the, the Jews from Jerusalem, and, and there were tensions, there were prejudices, there were difficulties, but there was still a tremendous commonality in the church up to this point. But in this chapter, God gives the answer to a central question that nobody had really thought to ask yet. What happens when Gentiles believe in Jesus with no Jewish background? They have no knowledge of the law. They have no Jewish tradition. They don't follow the rules. They don't even know the rules. They eat strange things. They worship at strange places. They have strange values. What happens when people that the Jews find strange, alien, even repulsive, start to believe in Jesus? People who are culturally foreign, scary, and difficult to be with. What happens when God tells them to love people that aren't like them? See, this is a huge challenge in the early church, in our text, and, and what's going on right here could have and really should have ripped the early church to shreds. This really should have led to all kinds of divisions that would have destroyed the unity of the early church and ultimately undercut its ability to become a growing witness that it was, right? It's really a testimony of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit was in this thing, that they were able to stay unified through these critical transitions. doesn't mean that the transitions were without pain, right? There was a real challenge to the early church, and we're going to see that developed as we continue to move through Acts, not everybody is thrilled with this new development. Not everybody is thrilled with God leading Peter in this way and what it's going to mean. Um, but the Spirit is in it, right? And, um, and here's the thing, though. It wasn't just a problem for the early church. It's a problem for us. Um, because it's a problem of pride. It's a problem of the human heart. And it's just as challenging for us today. Here's the thing, the gospel calls us to love others as we have been loved, which means if if we are going to be on mission with God, which is a mission of love, we need to love the unlovely, and we need to learn to value what we find worthless, and we need to learn to draw near to those that we'd rather be far away from. All right, let me give you a quick summary of the story we just read. Um, and make sure we, we, we notice the important parts. Okay, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. So, so he is non-Jewish. He, he is a centurion, so he leads a uh, hundred men. Uh, he has a cohort of a hundred soldiers. Um, he is influential in the Roman world. He is um, um, uh, clearly a, a, a God-fearer. He's praying. He gives alms. Um, but he's not a proselyte. He hasn't actually fully entered into Judaism. He hasn't submitted to all of the steps necessary to move in that direction. And as he is praying, um, an angel appears to him and tells him to send for Peter. Peter, meanwhile, is praying. 
And God shows up and tells him to go visit Cornelius, but, but not before giving him a, a weird vision, right? And this vision is central to this story. It's this large sheet coming down from heaven, and it's filled with animals. Like it says, animals of prey and, 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 and reptiles and, and birds of the air, right? It's full of all these animals, and it just descends on the rooftop. And, uh, and God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Rise, kill, and eat. Tells him three times, right? This thing comes down. Peter's like, uh-uh, we don't do that, right? Lord, I'm, I'm Jewish, <laughs> right? I follow your law. There are clean and unclean animals. There are things we can eat and things we can't eat. And there are appropriate ways even to fix the things we can eat, right? There's kosher food and there's kosher ways to cook it. And you're asking me to do what I've always thought was unthinkable, right? And yet God puts these things in front of Peter and says, get up, kill, and eat. Peter's shocked. Now I want you to see he's not being obstinate or prideful, I don't think, not at this moment. He's, he's just shocked, um, what God is asking him to do undermines not just his behavior, but his identity. What God is asking him to do isn't just about, I want you to eat something different for lunch today. He's asking him to do something he's never thought he could or would do. Something that was to him unthinkable. The law marked out the Jewish people as different and unique and holy in a, in a, in a world of, of paganism and polytheism. Uh, Judaism was unique, and, and, and they took the word seriously and sought to live it out um, carefully. Their dietary restrictions were not only an issue of obedience, they were an issue of identity. It's what made a Jew a Jew. It's what made God's people holy. What God was asking him to do was crazy talk. Now, I've tried to come up with some analogies so that we could enter into this a little bit. It's really difficult um, because as Americans, we're very eclectic in our dress, our behavior, our food. Uh, we have a very short history, um, right? Our country is, what, 239 years old? It's not like we've been around for thousands of years and established this long. We, we're just this melding place, right? Um, so here's some examples that I think might be close, right? It'd be kind of like telling a vegan to eat meat, kind of like telling a Baptist to drink alcohol. Kind of like telling your grandma to get a tattoo, right? Might be like telling my friend Phil to root for the Cubs for the rest of his life. Or my friend Debbie to root for the Cards for the rest of her life. Or telling a member of the KKK to let his daughter marry an African-American man. Or to tell a progressive millennial Christian to vote for Trump or a conservative baby boomer Christian to feel the burn, or maybe worse, vote for Hillary? All right. Here's the challenging thing, you guys. Every single one of these actually falls short. Because as deep as these things go, they don't go as deep as what God is telling Peter to do. The Jews had died to protect their sacred traditions, right? 
God's the one that gave them these dietary restrictions as part of the Old Testament law that was meant to mark them apart and make them a unique people unto God. God gave them to them and they had suffered and died to obey them. Right? Daniel had risked his life as a young man in Babylon to protect the dietary restrictions God had given him. He would not eat the rich foods, foods from Babylon because he was faithful. David almost starved himself instead of eating something and clean. Instead, he broke into one of the synagogues and ate the table of showbread. And now God was telling Peter, get up, kill, and eat. You guys, just touching some of the animals that were on that sheet would have been enough to make him ceremonial, unclean, and unable to enter the temple. So God is not just challenging his behavior. He's challenging his identity. He's saying, that's not what makes you unique or important anymore. That is not what it means to be a follower of God anymore. To make sure Peter got the point, God said it three times before taking the sheet back up into heaven. And we see Peter actually left confused at the end of it, right? I mean, it's so sudden, it's all very quick, and he's sitting there like, what in the world did I just see? What in the world did that mean? And in that very moment, the Lord tells him, all right, get up, there are people at the door, go with them. Okay, um, very clear God's in control of this whole situation, right? It's very similar to, to Saul's trip to, uh, uh, on the road to, to Tarsus, and, and when he... Um, the Lord kind of broke in and said, all right, enough of that. You're going to be a follower. God's breaking in, saying to Peter, look, now's the time. We're going to have a turning point in, in uh, the history of the development of the gospel, and, and I'm working with you. So you're going to follow these guys. You're going to go with them, and, uh, and you're going to figure it out as you go. So he goes, right? And, and as he goes, he, he enters this house full of Gentiles. Very strange situation for a Jewish man. <laughs> they avoided Gentiles in the marketplace, they avoided um, people that were, you know, they would be around proselytes around the temple. These were Jew- Gentile people who became followers of Judaism. But for a, a, a Gentile who didn't know God, who was not even a, a God-fearer or, or, or draw, they were, they were unclean. It was a mark of pride. The, the Jewish um, men, the, 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 the priests and the, and the Pharisees were known for their separation right? They would, they would proudly walk to the other side of the street just to not even breathe the same air as these, as these people. And yet Peter is brought into a house, not just with Cornelius, but with Cornelius's friends. He brought all his family in and his neighbors, and he walks in and it's just all these Gentiles. He's in their house. And he realizes that he's there for a purpose. He is there to share the gospel with them. So he does. He shares the gospel with Cornelius, his family, and a house full of other um, Gentiles. And his sermon that we read is unique among his sermons. There's no Old Testament quotes. There's no references to Jewish traditions. It is a walk through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And while he's talking, right? He doesn't even get to get to the invitation part, right? While he's talking, they believe the message as it's coming out of his mouth. And when they believe, the spirit falls and it is clear and it is dramatic. 
Some people call this the Gentile Pentecost, and I think that's actually pretty good terminology. Just like the Spirit fell on the Jews in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit falling on this Gentile group, and they are, they are manifesting the gifts of the Spirit, right? It is very clear they're praising God, they're speaking in foreign languages, they are, the presence of the Spirit is palpable and real and unmistakable, and Peter is looking at this saying, all right, it might be a little bit dense, but I get what's going on here. God wants them to believe the gospel. God wants them to hear the gospel and be followers of Jesus, not hear about Judaism and become followers of the law. The pathway into relationship with God is no longer through Jerusalem. The pathway into relationship with God is no longer the physical temple. The pathway into relationship with God is no longer um, through coming through the law. It is about hearing about Jesus and believing in Jesus which in his mind, his brain is blown. So he stays with them, which means he also shared meals with them. <laughs> and then when he back to Jerusalem, first thing that happens is he's criticized by what's called the circumcision party. These are Jewish Christians who really held very tightly to their Jewish heritage. They were very proud of, of their moral standing. They were very proud of their, of their separation from the world. They were very proud of, 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 of um, the law and how God had set them apart, right? To them, yes, become a follower of Jesus. And yes, fix your life by following the law, right? We can't just go around telling people to follow Jesus without telling them to fix their lives. We need to, we need to tell them to fix their lives by following the law and believe in Jesus. You can't just go into Gentile houses like that. You need to call them. So don't go into their culture carrying the gospel. Make them come into our culture. Put out the invitation, but don't defile yourself by going near them and being with them and rubbing shoulders with them. Call them out of their culture into ours. So Peter re-explained the entire story. And when he got to the end of it and explained how the Spirit of God had fallen... There was really nothing anyone could do to argue with that. And it says they, were, they fell into silence and they praised God. I think they fell into silence and some praised God. Because we're going to find that this group is not done creating problems yet. But this is like a bomb going off in the early church. It was challenging to them and it is equally challenging to us. So I think the central challenge of this passage is found in verses 28 and 29. So just take a look at verses 28 and 29. There are so many things that are important and I could draw out of this, but I think this is the central challenge for us. And this is Peter speaking to them after he's discovered why he's there. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should call, should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. So the central challenge is this. God has called Peter. <clears throat> God has called all of the Jewish believers at this point in time, and God is calling us today not to consider anyone common or unclean. These two words are loaded, and I want to unpack them a little bit. The word common is, uh, is an 
too surprising. It means something that is shared by all. Something that you don't even notice, right? It's just not special. Uh, it, is, it is something shared by all, right? The Greek word is koinos, and it actually comes from the same root as koinonia, and some of you may recognize that. Koinonia is the Greek word for community, for fellowship, where we share life with one another, right? Koinonia is the, the heart of the church experience, or at least it should be, this life on life, sharing life, knowing and being known, loving and being loved, of, of, of being generous and having others be generous with you, right? It's the heart of what makes the Christian community vibrant, where community is thriving, the church is alive and powerful, and where that sharing is absent, it becomes religious and moral and, and, and just a shell of what it should be, right? Koinonia is rich and powerful and beauty, beautiful. So how could koinos the same root becomes something unattractive. Because koinos, while it carries the idea of being shared, it really talks about something being shared so commonly that it becomes useless and worthless. Something that has no unique value. Something that we actually, in practical terms, come to see as trash. What God is revealing to uh, Peter is that there are no common people. There are no common people. Every person is created in the image of God, every single one of them. And having been made in the creation, been created in the image of God, they bear the dignity of that original stamp. They, they still have the original glory of God is still in there, right? We talk about this phrase, the, the glorious ruin that has happened to us since the rebellion of mankind against God. There is still a reflection of the glory of the Creator, even in the ruin of sin. That's true of all of us. We are all part of the glorious ruin. And what he's saying is, there are no worthless people. There are no trash people. They have been created in the image of God. And since every person is created in the image of God, to call them common, to call them worthless, to call them trash, is to blaspheme God. To not see the dignity and the beauty of the image of God in someone created in the image of God is to blaspheme the God in whose image they were created. To not see the image of God in them is to devalue God. So the first word that we unpack, I don't want you to see, he's telling Peter, I don't want you to see anyone as common. The second word is, I don't want you to see anyone as unclean. I don't want you to see anyone as unclean. Now, this was a unique idea. Both of these are unique ideas to Peter because previously Peter was taught that people, there were people who were common and unclean. Unclean is, is uh, uh, the Greek word um, akathartos, um, the root of it, kathartos. We get our English word catharsis from, if you know what a catharsis is. A cathartic moment is, is one of those moments where uh, you, you reach emotional clarity, right? Some of you um, went and and saw Inside Out, right? A kid's film, right? And it didn't make you cry, right? And you know I'm lying, because it did. 
right? Some of you went to this movie and you're watching this little blue girl run through, through you know, sadness, running through this world and joy tracing her and, 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 and this, all this stuff. And you're like, why am I crying? And then you leave and you're like, I feel better, right? That's, that's catharsis. Catharsis is when there's like this purging that takes place, right? It's usually something hard. It's something that's unpleasant. It's something that's a little bit difficult, but you go through it and you come out on the other side feeling cleansed feeling like something that was blocking your health has been purged, right? Um, this word, acatharsis or acathartos, the prefix a means the opposite of that. It negates it. So something that's unclean is something that is defiled, disgusting, repugnant, to consider someone as a cathartos is to consider them unclean, defiled, disgusting, or repugnant. Somebody that you would like to either have them washed or washed away. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that's a person that in order for me to be around them, we need to clean off all this stuff that's disgusting to me. We need to clean off all this stuff that I don't like to be around, all this stuff that alienates me and and makes me uh, uncomfortable, all this stuff that I don't like. It needs to be washed away or you need to be washed away. For someone to be unclean is saying they need to be purged or purged from your life. You guys, this is the radical nature of the gospel. It is a message of love and grace and acceptance. And it completely undercuts our cultural ways of assigning value. Our personal ways of harboring pride. It calls us to see people. To look at them and see people as people. Not as people that make me uncomfortable, not as people that are stupid or idiotic or on the other side of the ideological aisle from me, or, or people that, that are, are dangerous or safe, or we are to see people as God sees them. All right, so how do we know if we're doing this? How do we know if we're entering into the spirit of, of Acts 10, right? This idea that God has declared no people common are unclean, and that we are now to relate to them in a new way. Well, I think there's a good test right here in our passage, and I call it the table test. Um, when Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean, there's immediately a test in front of him. Is he going to share a meal with them? <laughs> right? I don't think there's any mistake that the central image of this passage has to do with eating, and in fact, sharing a meal, right? God gave Peter a test to drive home the lesson. God gave Peter a practical application to the theoretical concept. You guys, there are a few things that are more personal and loaded than inviting someone into your home. There really are a few things more personal than sharing a meal with someone. Now, we've lost a little bit of that in our culture because we're so quick, we're so fast, right? Fast food, um, every, we want every restaurant to be fast food. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I didn't go to McDonald's. I, I went over here, but I want the food ready in the same amount of time. And, and I want it fast. And I want it to be excellent. And I want to be able to eat and I want to move because we don't pause, right? Hopefully you see the bankruptcy of that lifestyle. If you go to a fast food lifestyle, you will sacrifice the intimacy of your own family, right? There, there is conversation that takes place around meals. There, there's seeing people and meeting people, right? When, when my kids were little and they were growing up, we, we tried to keep at least a couple nights a week that were devoted to the family meal where we would all gather around the table and we would just eat together and we would talk and we would laugh and we would listen and we would look, right? Because there's so much life and so much sharing of life that takes place in that environment. There are a few things more personal and loaded than inviting someone to that table. Right? I'm not just talking about meeting somebody at a, at a restaurant where you can grab a quick bite to eat and have a business meeting and move on. I'm talking about actually inviting them into your home, having them sit at your dining room table in the heart of, of your home. That's a very personal thing to share that meal. That's why feasts are often central to celebrations. You notice that? When you have a celebration, you tend to have a feast. Right? There's a wedding banquet, and, and, and there's a, often a, a funeral banquet. There, there, are, there are graduation banquets, right? We may not call them banquets. We may call them parties. But a lot of times what we're doing is, is we're gathering around a, 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 a meal, a feast, to share in a common experience, a share in a common fellowship, to share in, in knowing and being known and celebrating and having our joy increased as it's reflected in others, and having our sorrow decreased as it is comforted by others, right? We invite those we love to a place of personal intimacy and shared experience. The table test. So I've got a few questions for you. Who would you overlook inviting to your table because they just aren't important enough? I was challenged this week. I was in Philadelphia. Um, I was with um, a cohort of guys, other pastors that I've had the privilege of meeting with um, over the last year and a half. And we met with an author named Paul Miller. It was, it was incredible. It was life-giving. It was wonderful. But walking around Philadelphia was jarring, disorienting. I've never been to Philadelphia. And, um, and what struck me, honestly, was the number of homeless people. Everywhere I went, there were homeless people. And uh, on our first day, a guy came up to us while we were having lunch in a park, and he's like, I haven't eaten in 24 hours. And I, he's like, do you have money? I didn't have any. And one of my buddies was like, I got some food. And I'm like, hey, I've got some food. So we put together a meal for him. But as you're walking and you see more and more homeless people, what's your inclination? I know mine. It's to look away. It's to ignore their existence. I felt this burden in my heart as I was walking around. How do I, even I, I can't give to everybody. I can't solve their problems, but how can I dignify their existence? How can I say to them, I see you. And I honor your suffering even though I can't solve your problem. Who, who are the people that are invisible in your life? Who, who are the people that that really are just 
common and trash. They have no value because they offer you nothing. They have no value because they contribute nothing to your existence and they add nothing to your joy and, and all they bring is their need, right? Could be the checkout person at Walmart, right? They're just a machine. They're not a real human. Could be the homeless person on the side of the street. It could be um, the people that are working with you in your office that you don't report to and you're not dependent on them. They're dependent on you. They're there to serve you. What does it look like to give them the dignity due to those created in the image of God? Who would you overlook inviting to your table because they just aren't important enough? Who would you not share a meal with because they have nothing to contribute to you? Second question, who would you avoid inviting because you would feel emotional distress, anxiety, or anger in their presence? That's another way of saying, who would you not invite because you consider them unclean? Perhaps somebody on the other side of the cultural divide from you. If you're a conservative, how would you feel sharing a meal with Hillary? Or maybe worse, somebody who has a Hillary bumper sticker but has no personal importance. Somebody who's feeling the burn. Now, I'm going to throw a caveat on here because you're like, oh yeah, I'd share a meal with them. I'd share a meal with them and I would set them right. I would fix them. I would feed them and I would fix them. Let me show you the bankrupt, corrupt nature of the history of socialism. Let me show you how Hillary is a liar and should be in prison. Let me show you. Let me fix you. Here's the thing, you guys. We're not talking about inviting people to the table to fix them. They're still unclean to you if that's what you're inviting them to do. What you're saying is, okay, I'll have you near me, but I'm going to wash you. I find you repugnant, and I'm going to seek to wash off your repugnance. Remember what we talked about, the definition of unclean is, is somebody who needs to be purged or you would like to have purged from your life. To honor them as Christ would have you to honor them, you invite them in not to fix them, not to correct them, not to instruct them, but to see them and to honor them and to recognize in them the Imago Dei, the image of the same God who created you. That means to love them. How would you feel about inviting a Muslim refugee into your home? Or an undocumented immigrant worker? Or Caitlyn Jenner? How would you feel Inviting someone into your home with whom you have nothing in common and you find them on the other side of the cultural divide. Could you see in them the beauty of the Imago Dei? Call out in them 
the dignity of their creator and honor them without trying to fix them or trying to change them or trying to wash them or trying to do whatever it is you need to do to make yourself feel justified in being around people who are repugnant to you. If you are a progressive, how would you feel sharing a meal with Donald Trump? Maybe a taco bowl. (laughs) Or maybe worse, how would you feel sharing a meal with an uneducated follower of Trump? Not to argue, not to convince, not to change their mind, but to see the Imago Dei in them. To honor Christ simply by honoring them. Progressive Christian, how would you feel about sitting down to a meal with a racist or a homophobe? Sitting down with a dude who's just spouting sound bites that grow from fear and anger. From his loss of cultural power and influence in an ever increasing diverse and secularized society. Can you invite them to your table to see them? To love them, to honor the image of God in them. You're like, all right, Steve, 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 I hear you. Right? Jesus says, love them. I get it. But can't I love them and not like them? And aren't we supposed to stand for truth? Come on now. All this talk about love, where are we supposed to stand for truth, right? They're wrong, they're destroying our country. They're undermining our values. They are ruining our heritage. They are wrong. Aren't we supposed to fight for what's right? All right? I think the final lesson of the table test is this. We need to stop saying, I love you, but. Followers of Christ will begin with, I love you, because we recognize that we are called to love right? That is one of the prerequisites. We are to love others as we have been loved. We are to extend unmerited grace and acceptance to people uh, regardless of their standing, their background, or their condition of life, right? So what we say is, I love you, but we need to stop saying, I love you, but. Like, Steve, how can I invite these people to my table when they're stupid, How can I invite these people to my table when they are spouting angry rhetoric with which I do not agree? How can I invite these people to my table when they are in sin? How can I invite them then? First of all, God doesn't relate to us conditioned on our fixing ourselves, does he? The invitation isn't stop being a jerk and then believe in Jesus. Get all your thinking right and then believe in Jesus. 
clean up all your sin and then believe in Jesus, is it? God doesn't condition His love on our performance. He loves us in spite of our performance. He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us in spite of our pride. He loves us in spite of our desperate desire to rob Him of His glory and build our own. And yet He still invites us to the table of grace. He sits with us to honor us and see in us the image of Himself as defiled, as broken, as sinful, as ruined as it is. If God does, what makes us think we should be exempt? See, here's the thing. When we say, how can I invite Him to my table? What we're implying is that we're inviting them to a table where the ignorance has already been removed. <laughs> you're ignorant. I can't invite you to my table. The ignorance has already been removed. You're going to defile it. I can't, you're angry. I can't invite you here. There's no anger in my home. You're a sinner. I can't invite you into my home because you sin. See, the challenge isn't that people are sinners. It's that we hate their sin more than we hate our own. The challenge isn't that people are ignorance, it's that we hate their ignorance more than we hate our own ignorance. I love you, but, says, I consider you common. I consider you unclean. I love you, but you need to get fixed. I love you, but you need to get washed. I love you, but you need to get educated. What you're really saying is, I'll tolerate you, and I'll try to love you until you get there. And by there, I mean like me. Until you learn to think like me and act like me and have the same values as me, I'll tolerate you. I'll try to love you, which means I'll try to put up with you. That's not love. See, there's no I love you but with Jesus. Jesus says, I love you and. It's a very different message. I love you and I'm going to set you free. I love you and I'm going to cleanse you. I love you and I'm going to release your glory for God and for your good. I love you and. It begins not with a condition, I will love you when, which is what I love you but says. It is an unconditional statement that says, I recognize my image in you. I will love you and I will bless you. See, he starts with love. And then through love, he sets us free. He doesn't say, I love you and, by the way, here's a bunch of rules. That's not the way it works. What he says is, I love you, and I want to free you from your slaveries. I want to free you into the joy to which you were created. I want to free you into the dignity and the glory of the image of God. I love you, and. We need to be people of the I love you, and. People who begin with love, not with self-protection. People who begin with love, not with judgment. People who begin with love, not by identifying all the ways you're wrong and need to be fixed. And once we love people well, here's the amazing thing. They'll start inviting us in to have conversation with them. And in having conversation with them, we will learn from them and they will learn from us. 
we'll actually get the opportunity to share the love of Christ in word because we've already shared it in deed. A final thought. Peter faced pressure from people like him because he loved people who weren't. When he went back to Jerusalem, right, the circumcision party pulled him aside and said, you idiot, what are you doing? You can't hang out with those people. You can't do that thing. He was challenged and shamed by those who thought like he did because they were threatened when he acted in ways that didn't support uh, their agenda or reinforce their self-image of worth based on certain ideologies. Listen to me, this is the final point. If you have never faced persecution from your own people, you have not loved like Jesus. If you have never felt pressure from people who think like you, because you're hanging out with people who don't. Your table's not big enough yet. Because when we love like Jesus, the ideologues, the fundamentalists, whether they're religious conservative fundamentalists or liberal progressive fundamentalists, they get threatened by that. They did then and they do now. If you have never faced pressure from your own camp because you have loved people outside of your camp, you need to make your table bigger. All right, guys, I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen for a time of reflection. I am going to just ask you to pray. Let God work on your heart and invite you into the beauty of the I love you and. Because here's the thing, you need to start there. Not how do I make my table bigger, but how do I get more of the grace of God? How do I come more fully, more honestly, more openly, more brokenly to the table of God's grace so that that grace can then change me and flow through me into the lives of others? It's by consuming love that we learn to give love. It is by consuming grace that we learn to work in grace. Don't go to a place of self-condemnation. Do not go to a place of beating yourself up. Definitely don't go to a place where you're judging a bunch of other people. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here this morning. Stop that. That's not the path to grace. Let the vision of Jesus' love for you so fill your heart and so break you in beautiful, glorious ways that out of that brokenness flows the love and the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God of love and grace, that you do not demand that we fix ourselves before we are loved by you because we'd be hopeless. You love us as we are, and you love us in spite of how we are. You don't love our sin. You love us, and you love us enough to deliver us from that sin and to change us. And that change only comes as our hearts are softened and transformed by your love and grace. Your patience with us is amazing. Your generosity with us is unthinkable. Lord, break our hearts in beautiful ways. Free us to grace. Lord, don't allow us to be caught up in the sound bites and rhetoric of this season, swept up into the cultural warfare that the 
warring ideologies so want us wrapped up in, afraid of others, fighting others, dehumanizing others. Allow us, Lord, in the midst of all of this craziness and this chaos to be a people of grace, a people who bring dignity, a people who honor you and glorify you by seeking your kingdom first. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.